This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association. Respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and once again welcome to the program. Now we've already spent some time on the first of these verses, one who sees the infallible cause and effect of all phenomena in cyclic existence and beyond and destroys all false perceptions has entered the path which pleases the Buddha. Last week, this verse led us to talk about the interconnectedness of things and how that meant that nothing could exist independent of everything else. It built on the Buddhist contention that we've gone over in previous programs that nothing has any kind of independent and inherent existence. Today I'd like to continue with the discussion with a practical view on how to consider the thing most important to us, ourself. In his rather extensive commentary to Lama Tsongkhapa's text, Geshe Sonam Rinchen writes, Our misconception of the self, which distorts what exists, is the source of our suffering. The more we investigate to see whether the object to which this misconception clings exists, the more evident its non-existence becomes, and gradually the misconception dies away. When we gain a direct perception of reality as a result of this process, we become exalted beings. By exalted beings, he means, of course, arahats, bodhisattvas, or even Buddhas. He goes on to describe the process by which we can meditate on the absence of this object, the basis of our misconception. But before we go on to that, let's hit our motivation today as we usually do. You know what I'm going to say about that, because I say it every week. We should try to make bodhicitta our motivation, because that's the best of all motivations. It focuses our attention on attaining the best state to bring about both the temporary and ultimate welfare of all beings everywhere, and so it's both extensive and powerful. Now let's take a quick moment to consolidate such a motivation in our minds. But if you feel you really cannot at this stage, at least think that this program will become a cause for your own liberation and enlightenment. Thank you. Now returning to Geshe Sanam Rinchen, before he goes on to discuss meditation on the lack of an independent self, he asks the question, can choice exist in a world of dependently arising and conditioned things. It's a little bit of a byway to our main discussion, but I was personally interested in what he had to say, as a friend and I had a discussion some time ago about whether choice actually is possible in the Buddhist philosophy. Geshe Sonam Rinchen says that if things did not depend on causes and conditions, we could not make choices. Their very dependence permits our choices to create causes and conditions which set in motion new chains of dependent arising, he writes. This gives us hope, since it indicates the definite possibility of personal transformation if we create the causes and circumstances 
which allow it to happen. Now this doesn't really address the question my friend and I discussed, which was whether if the mind is so thoroughly conditioned and under the influence of karma, as Buddhism claims, can it actually make free will choices outside of its conditioning? My friend thought it couldn't, but I wasn't all that certain. Alan Wallace addresses the question in a paper titled The Buddhist View of Free Will Beyond Determinism and Indeterminism. He writes that the Buddha rejected both the theories of determinism that hold we have no free will but are subject to karma, the will of God, destiny and so on, and indeterminism, which says that everything happens through chance without causes and conditions. Wallace writes, In response to all the above views, the Buddha rejected on pragmatic grounds any theory that undermined the sense of moral responsibility. On the one hand, he rejected determinism as supporting inaction. If one believes that one is not responsible for one's actions, the will to act in a wholesome way and not an unwholesome way is stifled. On the other hand, he rejected the indeterminism of asserting that all experiences and events arise due to pure chance without reliance on causes and conditions. In addition, he concluded on empirical and rational grounds that there is no autonomous self that exists apart from and controls the body and mind, and he equally denied the existence of such a self among the psychophysical aggregates. In taking this position, he refuted all notions of a self as an unmoved mover, as an agent that causes certain events, with nothing causing it to make its decisions. Thus the sense that each of us is an autonomous, non-physical subject who exercises ultimate control over body and mind without being influenced by prior physical or psychological conditions is an illusion. Actually, as Wallace points out, we don't have to solve this question of whether we have free will or not if we want to devote ourselves to the path leading to the end of suffering. We know that we cannot find an independent controlling self within or outside the five aggregates that could exercise free will. Similarly, we can't find a substantial existence independent of causes, conditions, parts and designation in any other phenomena either. Taking their traditional example of a chariot, Wallace says that the thing we designate chariot cannot exist as a substantial thing independent of its parts, nor does it exist equivalent to any of the parts, and it also does not exist as a mere collection of the parts. He writes, The chariot is something designated upon as an assemblage of parts, none of which, either individually or collectively, is a chariot. The chariot comes into existence only when the label chariot is designated on the basis of those parts. And he goes on, In the same way, the term I is imputed on the assemblage of the body and mind, which are not by themselves the real self. I comes into existence only when I am conceptually designated as such. When most of us use these concepts and conventions, including the words I and mine, we grasp onto the reference of those labels as being real, independent of our conceptual projections. This is the delusional basis for all mental afflictions, such as craving and hostility. Those who are free of delusion still use those concepts and words, but they are not fooled by them. 
he points out that we can apply the same reasoning to our body and mind and all their parts, and we will find that the self is no more real or less than any other phenomenon. Therefore, he writes, just as we can meaningfully speak of a chariot performing certain functions, so can we refer to the self as an agent who makes decisions and engages in voluntary activity. However, if the only way to assert free will is through reliance on an autonomous self, Buddhism would have to reject both the self and free will. Wallace further points out that the philosophers such as Hegel and William James are in accord with this rejection and goes to E. Caird's book Hegel for the quote, Isolate a thing from all its relations and try to assert it by itself. You find that it has negated itself as well as, as its relations. The thing in itself is nothing. He says there are other ways of affirming human identity that don't assume an independent ego. And he writes, on such a basis, it remains meaningful to cultivate greater freedom rather than falling back on philosophical beliefs that one does or does not already have it. These pragmatic responses of the Buddha don't logically settle the question of the existence of the question of free will, but they do offer meaningful guidance for pursuing greater freedom while leaving the ultimate state of free will in metaphysical limbo. As William James wrote, if free will were true, it would be absurd to have the belief in it fatally forced on our acceptance. Considering the inner fitness of things, one would rather think that the very first act of a will endowed with freedom should be to sustain the belief in freedom itself. Wallace goes on to say that although feelings that come with our first awareness of sensory stimuli are, and I quote, the result of past karma, the following feelings are not past karma, but are the result of fresh karma associated with the way one responds to those stimuli. And so acts of volition are conditioned both by prior influences and by other factors, such as the quality of one's awareness, that are simultaneous with it. In this sense, Buddhism asserts a measure of free will insofar as one can reflect on one's options and decide on the best course of action in terms of its moral suitability. So, there we have an answer to the question of free will, choice and Buddhist thought. Now let's go back to Geshe Tsunam Rinchen and his commentary on how things exist. Remember that in our previous programs we went into some detail how emptiness and dependent arising are mutually inclusive. If something is empty of inherent independent existence, it must depend on other things. And if it is dependent on other things, it must be empty of inherent existence. To demonstrate the point, Geshe Sonam Rinchen uses the appointment of a professor. Firstly, he points out, you need to find a suitable person for the position. Then comes the designation, in other words, the naming. The person is not actually a professor until appointed, till appointed to a professorial position. Otherwise, Gishela writes, it would follow that he should have been a professor as a baby from the moment of birth, indeed even while he was still in his mother's womb. Before he receives the title of professor, he will not think of himself as a professor, and nor will anyone else. But once he's been appointed, he will think, I'm a professor, and others, for instance, those working with him, will think of him as such. This may seem obvious, but Geshela says it's really quite subtle. 
for the existence of everything is an attribution, just as the existence of the professor is an attribution. In other words, the assignment of a label to the suitable person which is the basis for the labeling. But just because something is attributed or designated, you can't just label things in any old way you wish. Let's take as an example the Siakama Jataka tale about a wily merchant and his ass. Though in the end the merchant quite wasn't quite as wily as he imagined. The tale, which I've taken from the website Pansia Panas Jatakaya, with the URL jatakakata.lk, goes like this. Once upon a time, when Brahmadatta was reigning in Banaris, the Bodhisattva was born in a farmer's family, and when he grew up, he got a livelihood by tillage. At the same time, there was a merchant who used to go about hawking goods, which a donkey carried for him. Wherever he went, he used to take his bundle off the ass and throw a lion skin over him, and then turn him loose in the rice and barley fields. When the watchmen saw this creature, they imagined him to be a lion, and so durst not come near him. One day this hawker stopped at a certain village, and while he was getting his own breakfast cooked, he turned the ass loose in a barley field with a lion skin on. The watchman thought it was a lion, and durst not come near, but fled home and gave the alarm. All the villagers armed themselves and hurried to the field, shouting and blowing on conches and beating drums. The f- ass was frightened out of his wits and gave a hee-haw. Then the Bodhisattva, seeing that it was a donkey, repeated the first stanza. Nor lion nor tiger I see, not even a leopard is he, but a donkey the wretched old hack with a lion skin over his back. As soon as the villagers learnt that it was only an ass, They cudgelled him until they broke his bones, and then went off with a lion-skin. When the merchant appeared and found that his ass had come to grief, he repeated the second stanza. The donkey, if he'd been wise, might long the green barley have eaten. A lion-skin was his disguise, but he gave it ye all and got beaten. As he was in in the act of uttering these words, the ass expired. The merchant left him and went his way. Now, I must admit, it's not a very compassionate story, but it serves to show why you can't label something that it is not. The point is that although the merchant could put a lion skin on the donkey, it didn't turn the donkey into the king of the jungle. And while the villagers labeled lion on the animal in the field and were scared, as soon as they realized it was an inappropriate label due to a disguise, their behavior changed dramatically. The teachings say that we need three criteria for an attribution to be generally accepted and to perform the function designated to it. First of all, it must appear to conventional awareness and it should not be invalidated by any other valid conventional perception or an awareness realizing the ultimate nature of things. So that's the three things. It must appear to conventional awareness. It should not be invalidated by any other valid conventional perception. And thirdly, it must not be invalidated by an awareness realizing the ultimate nature of things. Let's take the donkey in the lion skin, for instance. Say I was the watchman, and I saw the creature in the barley field. It appeared to me to be a lion, and I go to the villagers shouting, Lion, lion in the barley field! Now all the villagers come running with sticks and drums. To us, the animal really appears as a lion, and we believe solidly that it is a lion. 
But now the scared donkey yells, Yee-haw, yee-haw, and the Bodhisattva says, That's not a lion, that's a donkey. The first conventional attribution, that is a lion, no matter that it has been made by many conventional awarenesses, has been contradicted by another valid conventional awareness. But now, if the Bodhisattva was not yet a highly realized being and still thought of real donkeys in real terms, existing independently from their own side as donkeys, the attribution would be invalid, for no donkey would exist in that way at all. However, if the Bodhisattva had already realized emptiness and saw that donkey existed as merely as designation on the basis of a collection of causes, conditions and parts that included four legs, a tail, large ears and a loud yaw, the attribution would not be invalidated by a mind realizing the nature of reality. Geshe Sonam Renchen writes, Every validly existent attribution fulfills these criteria. Though things have no ultimate or true existence, they exist conventionally. If anything had ultimate or true existence, it could not depend on any other factors. But since everything depends on its basis of attribution, nothing has objective or true existence. Now probably what is most important for us in this discussion is not donkeys or lions, but ourselves. What about me? How do I exist? When I talk about myself, what do I mean? And does my meaning accord with what other people understand myself to be? Geshe Sonam Rinchen goes on to explain how to meditate to discover the nature of the self, and not surprisingly, the self is found not to exist in any way different from the donkey as an attribution on a basis. However, that is not how we, in our everyday state of comparative mindlessness, see the self. Geshe writes, When no investigation is made, the self clearly exists, as in, I am sitting, or I am eating. For instance, if you're sitting in a restaurant with a friend and your partner calls you on the mobile and asks what you're doing, you may say, I'm sitting in Luigi's eating pizza with Harry. At that time, the eye that appears to your non-analytical mind appears to exist quite clearly. Similarly, the eye of your partner will appear to you equally clearly when you in turn ask, what's up with you? But now, if we start looking for the self, it's not so simple. We can start off by acknowledging, in line with what we've already discussed around dependent arising, that the self must exist either dependently or independently. There's no third option, is there? Gessler writes that to us it normally seems that the self, and I quote, to exist entirely from the side of our body and mind, independent of any process of attribution, or check this for yourself. When you say, I'm sitting eating pizza, do you think the I is just assigned to the body and mind? Or does it seem to exist from its own side, perhaps in accordance with a mixture of body and mind or something like that? Or does it just appear to exist as itself, as controller of body and mind? Geshe points out that if the self existed as we automatically grasped it, we should be able to find it with a dint of investigation. Searching among the body and mind elements, we should be able to see it quite clearly. He writes, It should be findable when we search for it, either within the body or mind, or as something separate from these. It should become more and more apparent 
as we proceed with the investigation. So then, we start searching, first seeing if the body is the self. Geshe says that if the self were the body, then when the body dies and is cremated, the self would come to an end as well. Now most Buddhists, of course, believing in rebirth, would automatically say that this is impossible for the self continues after de death. Westerners, having some doubt about rebirth, however, would not be convinced by such an argument, so they may have to think of other proofs. But even those of us who are convinced of rebirth must be careful here not to think that the continuing self is some kind of inherent, independent and unchanging entity that goes from life to life. That's not the Buddhist argument at all. In fact, it goes against the most compelling point of all the Buddhist teachings. However, the sense of self does continue to the next life. Another point Geshe raises in opposition to the body being the self is that there are many body parts. Therefore, there would have to be many selves. Now, this seems to presuppose that any part of the body is actually the body. If you consider the right pinky finger to be the body as much as you think your brain is, I guess this argument might hold. But I'm not convinced that holding a body part to actually be the body is all that tenable. What might be more convincing is going through the body parts, trying to find the body that is the self. The Buddha himself recommended meditating on the 32 parts of the body, although that was to see how repulsive the body is and to get rid of attachment for it rather than find the self. Still, we can use that as a basis for our meditation. And when we go through all the body parts, it becomes difficult to actually find a body separate from the parts. In fact, we come back to the fact that the body is only an attribution or designation on the basis of the body parts, their causes and conditions that are keeping them working. We cannot actually find an independent body at all. But again, I don't think that means we can say the body is each part. What we can say is that there is there, as there is no independently existing body apart from designation on the parts, etc., the body cannot exist as the independent self. Yeshua then makes the point that if the body were the self, we couldn't talk about my body, which implies the body is a possession of something different from itself. If, pointing to a blue Honda Civic, I say, that is my car, it certainly doesn't imply that the car and I are the same thing. In fact, it implies the opposite. The car is one thing and I am another, and the car is linked to the I by the definition of belonging or possession. Geshe says that when we use the term my body, we are expressing a relationship of controller and what is controlled. I am the controller and my body is the controlled. Just as the master is not the servant, the self is not the body, he writes. Yet the self is not an entity apart from the body either. If it were, it would be impossible to speak of my body. A horse and a cow are different entities. When the cow is sick, you cannot say the horse is sick. But when your body is unhealthy, you say, I am sick. And when it is healthy, you say, I am well. The self and the body are thus in a dependent relationship. Now some people who have thought about this have balked at using the way we manipulate language to make a convincing argument of this kind. Manipulation of language is manipulation of language. 
and may have little to do with describing the way things actually are. However, I guess that the way we manipulate language does indicate how we approach the relationships between things and how things exist in relation to each other. I initially thought this language-based argument was somewhat contrived, but I see more point to it now I've used it in meditations. So even if you find it a bit artificial, try it for a while and you might find it makes a positive impression on your mind. Geshe Sanamrenchen then goes on to examine why the self is not the mind. If the self were the mind or consciousness, he writes, since the self appears to exist independently without relying on other factors, consciousness should also exist independently. However, consciousness cannot arise without an object. Pleasurable and unpleasurable states of mind depend on attractive and unattractive elements. A single moment of mentation depends on many causes and conditions. For instance, a moment of visual awareness depends on the presence of a visible form, the eye sense faculty, space between the two, and a preceding moment of awareness. Now to understand here, you need to know a little bit, a little bit about how Buddhists view human physiology and consciousness. We've gone through this in a previous program, but some of you may not have been with us and others may have forgotten. So, from a Buddhist point of view, we don't only have one consciousness, but six. Each sense organ has its own consciousness, modus operandi, and its own sphere of comprehension. For instance, the ordinary eye has no feasible way of smelling a rose, no matter how appealing the visual impression is. To work properly, then, the eye needs a visible form and something known as the eye-sense faculty, some subtle part of the working of the eye that allows sight. In his book, Everyday Consciousness and Primordial Awareness, Kenshin Trangu Rumshe writes, This so-called eye faculty is an extremely subtle faculty within the eye. The Buddha and all the siddhas who are endowed with extrasensory perception and who are able to work miracles describe the eye faculty thus. The faculty that gives rise to the eye consciousness looks like a flax flower, blue and extremely small and subtle. However, it is no coarse form consisting of atoms, but a clear form, a manifestation of light. When a person dies, or when the sense organs are damaged and cease to function, the clear form of the sense faculty dissolves. It won't remain. In the living person, however, it is present as a manifestation within the sense organ. Within the eyes, the eye faculty takes on the form of a flax flower. The consciousness that is specific to sight arises in dependence on this eye-sense faculty and other things that Geshe-Lala mentions. Similarly, the four other sense consciousnesses of hearing, touch, taste and smell arise in dependence on their respective sense faculties and so on. The sixth consciousness is the mind consciousness and the sense organ there is the mind itself. This consciousness is therefore somewhat different from the others. We won't go any, into this any further as I only mentioned it so you have under, some understanding of what Geshe is talking about as we Westerners see the operation of the senses a little differently. Geshe then goes on to say that as with the body, the fact that we say my mind is an indication that self and mind are not identical, yet no self can be found distinct from the mind. When we experience anxiety and mental tension, we say I'm unhappy. And we're in a positive and joyful state of mind, 
We say I'm happy. Does the self exist? Yes, but not as we perceive it. It appears to be what it is not and exists in a way which does not accord with how it appears. Yet owing to our confusion and imprints of ignorance, we assume it exists as it appears. And that's where we'll have to leave the argument for our time is up. Thanks for joining the program. Hope to see you next week. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.